0: welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 130, and it's about the pregnancy of Anne Boleyn and the birth of Elizabeth I, which we celebrate each year on September the 7th. First, just a couple bits of admin. It's been a while since I thanked my patrons, and I need to do so now. You all helped me keep this show going, and I couldn't be more grateful to you. Thank you to Elizabeth, Kelly, Joanne, Lady Anne, Jessica, Kathy, Katie, Susan, Celine, Shandor, Ryan, Jurgen, Catherine, Ian, Wendy, Michael, Kara, Philip, Katie, Jim, Cynthia, Sarah, Al, Sharon, Helen, John, Impressa, Christine, Vicky, Kathy, John, Kimberly, Twyla, Char, Delia, Kendra, Melissa, Andrea, Berta, Babette, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, and Candace. If you would like to join this exclusive group of very intelligent people and get fun rewards like the Tutor Planner, books, and other goodies, go to patreon.com slash EnglandCast for more details. And just a final reminder before we get started, I want to remind you about TutorCon, which is just about five weeks away. So for those of you who are procrastinators who wait until the last minute to get your tickets and make plans and stuff, I am right there with you. I am a total procrastinator procrastinator as well, but your time is running out. So there are still tickets available for three days of learning, feasting, parties, and getting to do all of that with 120 of your new best tutor enthusiast friends. So go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2019 for all the details. So now let's talk about Elizabeth, born the 7th of September, 1533. Of course, we can't talk about Elizabeth without first talking about her mother. After at least five years of withhold holding herself from a full-on sexual relationship with Henry VIII. All signs point to her finally succumbing to Henry on the famous trip to Calais in 1532, where Anne was treated like a queen while Henry held meetings with Francis. Events with Henry's divorce were moving ahead quickly. The new idea that Henry could declare himself the head of the church and break away from Rome, and rather than wait for papal approval of his divorce, he could just have an English cleric declare his marriage invalid. By February or so, Anne was talking about how she had developed a strong craving for apples, and that Henry himself had told her that this was a sign that she was pregnant. And By the spring of 1533, Cranmer was orchestrating the final proclamation that Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was invalid. Anne had a very easy first part of her pregnancy. She was about six months pregnant when she was crowned in a lavish coronation ceremony that we can only imagine would have been draining to her. So I know when I was six months pregnant, I really didn't feel like going around in a litter looking jubilant and excited and greeting my people, many of whom actually hated me. When I was six months pregnant, I felt like spending all day long in a swimming pool, being weightless and wearing flip flops because I couldn't tie my shoes. But I digress. The coronation was necessary so that there would be no question about the baby's legitimacy. Elizabeth had to be born legitimate to a queen in order to secure her right to the throne. Of course, as much as Anne was queen, there were still those who were not happy with this arrangement. In May, Cromwell received news that a merchant from Antwerp was selling insulting images of Henry and Anne on cloths that he had made. and There were books circulating, there were a lot of people who were unhappy with this. In his biography of Anne Boleyn, Eric Ives wrote that for a time after her coronation, Anne's health was reportedly quite good. But there is reason to believe that in later stages of her pregnancy, she had some challenges. Ives cites one source saying that Henry was concerned enough to hope for a miscarriage if it would save Anne. He didn't go on summer holidays as he normally would, declining a progress and staying at Windsor where she could rest until it was time for her confinement. Perhaps some of her bad health was due to stress. So that summer, she started to suspect that Henry had a mistress. The idea that kings should be faithful to their wives, especially when the wife was pregnant was seen as ludicrous. The wife was otherwise occupied growing a human. The king could go out and do as he wished. But Anne probably thought that though he was never faithful to Catherine during her pregnancy, things would be different for her. Famous last words of so many women around the world, no? it's going to be different with me. After all, she had reason to think this he had been faithful during the entire courtship. But now that he was married and Anne was pregnant, things were different. And the rumors surfaced in the summer of 1533 that Henry was having an affair. The name of the woman with whom he was having said affair is unknown. But for Anne, this would have been seen as a threat. She knew that she had replaced a queen as a mistress, and now she was vulnerable to the same treatment. And until she had a son, she would never be fully secure. She must have been praying fervently that a sun was growing inside of her. She did confront Henry that summer, and Henry responded in his usual way, being upset that she had even said anything in the first place. This is where we see the famous letter from Chapuis writing that, The king has taken from his treasures one of the richest and most triumphant beds. It was as well for the lady that it was delivered to her two months ago, for she would not have had it now because being full of jealousy and not without cause, she used some words to the king at which he was displeased, and told her that she must shut her eyes and endure as well as more worthy persons, and that she ought to know that it was in his power to humble her again in a moment more than he had exalted her. Them's fightin' words. Her chamber for confinement, which she entered on the 26th of August in Greenwich, would have been shrouded in mystical and sacred femininity, part of the rituals of childbirth that went back millennia. One of the things that Henry VIII's grandmother, the amazing Lady Margaret Beaufort, is remembered for is that she codified many of the rules of court life, including that of confinements for queens. So Anne would have followed her recommendations. She would stay in this chamber where all of the windows were covered with the exception of one that was unblocked to let in the light. There would be relics and a baptismal font. Midwives were actually given the authority to baptize babies who would not survive. They needed to have all the tools they needed in the event that Anne's baby didn't look like she would make it. This was a room that was reserved only for women. No male attendants could enter. And they would have had tapestries hung that would have been depicting scenes of fertility. They would have had prayer books and beads to use during chants and depictions of saints who would protect women in labor. As a side note, much of this actually fell away with the Reformation. I did an episode several years ago, five, six years ago on pregnancy and childbirth in medieval and Renaissance England. It's interesting that one of the kind of side effects that you don't think about with the Reformation is that a lot of this chanting and prayers to the saints um, was actually made illegal. So women were legally not allowed to call out to anyone other than God to see them through childbirth. Couldn't call out to Mary or any saints, only God. Now, how much of this was enforced is doubtful in my mind. I would not want to be the magistrate charged with interrupting a full on second stage labor to remind a mother not to pray to anyone other than God, that would be a bad scene. So I don't know how much it was actually enforced. But that was the rule. So Henry spent the time that Anne was in confinement making plans for the joust that he would hold to celebrate the birth of his son. Of course, everyone was convinced that it was going to be a son. The court astrologers and the doctors, everybody assured him that it would be a son. And why would it not be right? Everything else was going so well for them. So he planned to call the child Henry or Edward, but nope, at 3pm on Sunday, the 7th of September, out popped a girl. Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, was delighted, but Henry and Anne weren't too upset after they got over the initial shock. Anne's labor was easy enough after her health issues of the late summer, and Elizabeth was healthy, so it all looked okay. Henry canceled the jousts, but he had also done that with Mary's birth. And a herald did immediately announce the birth of Henry's first legitimate child, Deum was sung by the Chapel Royal at St. Paul's. Plans for christening were made for three days hence, where there would also be bonfires and free wine in London. As much as both parents were distraught by the sex of Elizabeth, at least they took comfort in the fact that the baby was healthy and that Anne was clearly fertile. And Anne actually considered naming the baby Mary as a blow to Princess Mary and Queen Catherine. The idea that was that there would be two Princess Marys in England, with the new one having precedence over the old one. Imagine how insulting that would have been to Princess Mary. Anne and Henry sent out a birth announcement that read, It hath pleased the goodness of Almighty God, in his infinite mercy and grace, to send unto us at this time good speed in the deliverance and bringing forth of a princess, this was where they had to add the extra S because initially it just said Prince, and they had to like kind of pencil that in, which is kind of funny. To the great joy and inward comfort of my lord, us, and all of the king's good and loving subjects. And Henry declared that Elizabeth was going to be the name after his mother, who was, of course, the Yorkist heiress who united England with her marriage to Henry Tudor. The christening took place on the 10th of September. Anne had originally asked Catherine to send her the christening gown, believing that it was property of the crown, but she was told that it was the personal property of Catherine and Henry actually backed her up on that, which was amazing that Henry took Catherine's side, but he said, no, it's her personal property. So Anne made a new one. Sidley Castle has a christening gown on display, which they say may have been Elizabeth's, but there are some disputes and debates about that because the embroidery isn't completely accurate to the time period. The most thorough explanation of the christening we have is from Hall's Chronicle, and he writes, the 7th of September being Sunday between three and four of the clock at afternoon, the Queen was delivered of a fair lady, for whose good deliverance, Todaym was sung incontinently, and a great preparation was made for the christening. The mayor and his brethren, and forty of the chief citizens, were commanded to be at the christening the Wednesday following, upon which day the mayor, Sir Stephen Peacock, in a gown of crimson velvet, and the aldermen in scarlet with collars and chains, and all the council of the city with them, took their barge at one of the clock, And the citizens had another barge, and so rode to Greenwich, where many lords, knights, and gentlemen assembled. The friar's church was also hanged with rich arras, and the font was of silver, and stood in the midst of the church three steps high, which was covered with a fine cloth and diverse gentlemen with aprons and towels about their neck gave attendance about it that no filth should come to the font. So there were people waiting around with aprons and towels to make sure that no dirt came to the font. Over it hung a square canopy of crimson satin fringed with gold, And between the choir and the body of the church was a close place with a pan of fire to make the child ready in. So they made a special little room for Elizabeth to warm up in before and after the baptism, because you can't have the royal princess being cold during the baptism. When all these things were ordered, the child was brought to the hall, and then every man set forward, first the citizens two and two, then gentlemen, esquires, and chaplains. Next, after them, the aldermen and Mayor alone, and next the king's council, then the king's chapel, then barons, bishops, earls, the earl of Essex bearing the covered basins gilt, after him the Marquess of Exeter with a taper of virgin wax, next to him the Marquess of Dorset bearing the salt, behind him the Lady Mary of Norfolk bearing the crimson, which was very rich of pearl and stone, the old Duchess of Norfolk bare the child in a mantle of purple velvet with a long train furred with ermine. The Duke of Norfolk with his marshal's rod went to the right hand of the said duchess, and before them went officers of arms. The Countess of Kent bare the long train of the child's mantle. Four other lords carried a canopy over Elizabeth's head. When the child was come to the church door, the Bishop of London met it, with diverse bishops and abbots mitred and began the observances of the sacrament. The godfather was Lord Thomas, Archbishop of Canterbury. The godmothers were the old Duchess of Norfolk, and the old Marchioness of Dorset, widows. And the child was named Elizabeth. And after that all things were done at the church door. The child was brought to the font and christened. And that done, Garter Chief King of Arms cried aloud, God in his infinite goodness, send prosperous life and long to the high and mighty Princess of England, Elizabeth. Then the trumpets blew, and the child was brought up to the altar, and the Gospel said over it. After that, immediately the Archbishop of Canterbury confirmed it, and the Marchioness of Exeter being godmother. Then the Bishop of Canterbury gave unto the Princess a standing cup of gold. The Duchess of Norfolk gave her standing cup of gold, fretted with pearl, the Marchioness of Dorset gave three gilt bowls, and the Marchioness of Exeter gave three standing bowls, graven all gilt with a cover. Then was brought in wafers and hypocrites and such plenty that every man had as much as he would desire. And they set forward the trumpets of four going in the same order as they did when they came thitherward. And in this order, they brought the princess to the queen's chamber door and then departed. The mayor went to the king's chamber, and tarried there a while with his brother and the aldermen. And at last the dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk came out from the king, and reported to the mayor and his brethren that the king thanked them heartily, and commanded them to give thanks in his name, and from thence so went to their barge. Eric Ives writes in his biography of Anne Boleyn that the christening was a chance for Anne to gloat over her fertility. Not only was the ceremony held at the Church of the Observant Friars, one of the last holdouts in favor of Catherine, but also little jabs like making Mary's servants and household take part. Also, Catherine's dear friend, the Marchioness of Exeter, was one of the godmothers. Everyone knew that she wanted to have nothing to do with it, but she took part in order to not tick off the king. Also, in gratitude of being named the godmother, she had to provide an expensive gift and. Hall's Chronicle just stated that she gave three engraved silver gilt bowls with covers. Also, the Boleyns and Howers had a prominent place, as would be expected. Of the 21 participants, there were Anne's father and brother, as well as eight Howard relations, plus Cranmer and some other people linked to Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell himself was there to watch. He had planned the coronation and he had likely planned the christening as well. It seemed as if Anne and Henry had won in this momentous birth of Princess Elizabeth. But as Eric Ives points out, before the birth of Elizabeth, Anne was the hope of a son for England. While pregnant, she was the hope fulfilled. But now she had a daughter. Anne Boleyn was unable to cement her position the way that she would have if she had had a son, which would have quieted all but the very firmest detractors. The claims of a son would outweigh anything else, and everyone in Europe would have to recognize it. Instead, she was still uncertain on the throne. Mary would still have precedence because of her age and support of Catholic Europe. So that's it for this week. There are two book recommendations, both biographies of Anne Boleyn, of course, the seminal one by Eric Ives, and a shorter, a little bit more digestible one from Elizabeth Norton. Links to buy are on the EnglandCast website at englandcast.com slash ElizabethBirth englandcast.com slash elizabethbirth. Remember to get your TudorCon tickets for all the procrastinators out there, englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2019. I cannot wait to see you in October. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or through Twitter at Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. I'll be back in about two more weeks with a special listener request episode on inventions during the Tudor period. So, thanks to the listener who wrote in and suggested that. I'm totally going to do it because it sounds fascinating. So, I'll be back with you in about two weeks. Blow, northern wind, a for may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hotel board in Bower Bridge, that's all families on sea.